that we get some Christmas atmosphere. I'm still in Florida, but I'm outside. I'm reading today from Luke 1, from verse 45, in the New King James Version. The popular image of Mary, as we hear the words of her song, The Magnificat, is that they're said with her head lifted up to the sky, hands in prayer posture, and a sweet smile on her face. Another picture I heard described in that they were spoken by a girl who sings them defiantly to her God through her tears with fists clenched against an unknown future, like we might pray them today. I was also fascinated to read that this prayer of Mary's was considered so subversive that it was banned from being recited at protest marches by the Argentine government. Again, it helped me to hear these familiar words with different ears. The reading starts with the words of Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, who had just heard Mary's news. Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfilment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Saviour, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. This is God's word to us. Amen. It's so appropriate that we have Anna Balfour reading our text this morning. Every word that she read belongs to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Every word is in the feminine. It is a woman who speaks. It should be a woman who recites those original words. <clears throat> Anna, whether she remembers it or not, read this same text for us last year, not on this particular Sunday of Advent, of Advent, but during Advent, and it's an annual player in the lectionary. And it's absolutely crucial to the nativity of Jesus. <clears throat> the temptation is to run ahead, to get to Jesus, to get to the manger, get to the man. But first, there is the woman. First, there is Mary. First, there is this teenage girl with a fetus in her womb and a fire in her belly. How else could it be? If you are the chosen Theotokos, the Greek word for bearer of God, if you are that chosen bearer of God, you cannot be a wilting flower in the sun or a shaking reed in the wind. Mary is a strong woman. You will hear it today in her story and in her words. As the bumper sticker says, well-behaved women rarely make history. And Mary is like a defiant Rosa Parks who refuses to be put in her place. 
like a freedom-fighting Harriet Tubman come to set the oppressed free, a joyful but uncompromising poet like Maya Angelou whose words open a different future to us. Think of Mary today, and when you hear her song, the incredible song that she sings, don't think of Taylor or Katie or Miley or any of those other white girl names. Think Aretha. Think Mavis. Think Edda. Think Tina, as in Tina Turner. I intentionally chose minority voices, examples that come from women of color, because that's what Mary was. She was brown. A first century Jew wasn't white and blue-eyed. Thus, she was marginalized, kicked to the edges of society, living in a backwater, rebellious town judged by her appearance. She was poor. Her new husband, a carpenter, which meant that they were not landowners, which meant they were even lower than the peasants. She was discriminated against because she was a woman, because she was young and seemingly carrying a child out of wedlock. She was under the boot of an occupying empire. She was subjected to a system of sexism and racism and injustice that no American living today has ever experienced. She was a cog in the machinery of suppression, oppression, and transgression. But she would not go gently into that good night. No, ma'am. She was tough. She was fierce. She was defiant. She was contrary. Oh, Mary, Mary, quite contrary. You know that nursery rhyme. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow? With silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row. Harmless enough upon first reading, but look and listen closer. And according to Jaime Rubio, the contrary Mary here is Mary Tudor. She was the daughter of Henry VIII and one of his several wives and was Queen of England for five terrifying years. She tried to return England to the Catholic Church and she had so many Protestants imprisoned, beheaded, or burned at the stake that she earned the name Bloody Mary. So think about that when you are drinking those two-for-one deals at your next brunch. This contrary Mary's garden is the graveyard of her enemies. The silver bells and the cockle shells are instruments of torture. And all those pretty maids in a row are those poor Protestants she put in the Iron Maiden. And no, I'm not talking about the rock band. The Iron Maiden was a torture device. It was a narrow metal cage lined with interior spikes. And the victim was placed inside of it, standing. And the doors were shut so that all those spikes would pierce the body. But they would not go deep enough to kill the person. Just hold them there in misery. How does your garden grow from the bodies and blood of those tortured and put to death? But there's another interpretation. As Bloody Mary was long gone before this nursery rhyme was circulated, and maybe it wasn't circulated at the time because everybody was afraid of Bloody Mary. But the other interpretation is that Mary Mary, quite contrary, is Mother Mary, the defiant Mary of Luke 1, the right opposite of Mary Tudor. This was a teaching device for children to first learn the story in Sunday school, as it were. Mary, Mary, quite contrary, how does your garden grow with silver bells and cockle shells and pretty maids all in a row? Mary has brought life to the world. 
She has built a garden in the wilderness. She has decorated the dark, drab, crooked land with color, with blooming flowers, with Jesus himself. As the original lyrics do not end with pretty maids all in a row, but with lady bells all in a row, another flower. This contrary Mary overturns the weeds, the weather, and the ways of the world to incubate beauty and produce justice, putting everything into grace-filled order. Let's return to her words, her song. It is called the Magnificat, Latin for to magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord, also called the Canticle of Mary. It is a hymn, it is a song, and it is a doctoral thesis in holy resistance. Stanza one. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has regarded the lowly estate of his maidservant. Henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. This is the magnifying portion of the song and we like it. It is uplifting. It is praise and worship. Mary recognizes the grace that has come upon her. She knows this task that has been assigned to her, as difficult as it may prove to be, is also the highest honor. But then there is stanza two. Listen closely again. His mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Oh, Mary went from preaching to meddling, as the old saying goes. She stopped talking in generalities and got painfully specific. She stopped encouraging and started offending. Mary went from all is calm and all is bright to open confrontation, audacity, and contrariness. Let me tell you about a a young man named Benjamin Wildflower. He has the greatest name in the world. Benjamin Wildflower. And I have a picture of him for you. I hope you're seeing it on the screen right now. It is a picture of him in Philadelphia where he lives with Gritty. Gritty is the mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers hockey team, by the way. Benjamin, in fact, lives in Philadelphia with his wife, Naomi, after being born in and growing up in New Guinea. He is a revolutionary in the true sense of the word, though he would think of himself as only a guy. He was raised in a Pentecostal church and headed off to college to study religion and philosophy. And in his last year of college, he took an elective art course in printmaking. And the slow, thoughtful work of carving and cutting and inking and printing captivated him. And when he finished college, he thought, Rather than being a religion and philosophy guy, he would become an artist because only religion and philosophy guys make less than artists, he said. But he found out that doing art for a, for a living, doing art for money instead of art from his heart took all the love and passion out of it. 
So today he makes a living in construction. He's a well-educated carpenter with a degree in religion and philosophy, experience in international missions, and thousands of miles of world travel, and he enjoys it very much, and he does art for free or for the lowest possible price to cover his expenses. And speaking of his radical, revolutionary, contrary ideas, he says this, The themes of my art are almost always biblical. Much of my work reflects on how certain passages of Scripture are emphasized in some traditions, but completely. I highlight the theme of God's contempt for wealth and His love for the impoverished. The Christian life demands that all hungry people be fed, whatever the cost, to the ruling class. A big part of why we're attracted to this model of ministry is because we have found that Siding with the lowly and the oppressed has helped us to find God in a place where it often seems like God is absent. It helps us to remember that in Jesus something has been accomplished that elevates the oppressed and saves the rich from what is empty. So he is a fascinating, compelling young man, as is his wife Naomi. So with that as context, I want to show you his most famous image carved several years ago. It is called the Magnificat, of course. And it was so controversial when it was first discovered that the Washington Post and other newspapers did a whole story on it as churches here in the States clutched their pearls and said, well, I never. Benjamin didn't know he had caused a problem, though. He was living in a slum in India at the time, working among the poor without electricity, internet, or running water. And it was only when he moved back to Philadelphia, long after the fact, did he learn that he and his artwork had become so controversial. So look at this image, if you would, and hold it on the screen there for a moment. I showed it briefly last year. Benjamin Wildflower's interpretation of Mary and the Magnificat. First, I want you to look how his Mary is standing. She has her fist clenched and raised like a champion prize fighter. The stars of heaven make the halo around her head. With one foot, she is crushing the serpent, defeating evil and the devil. With the other foot, she stands on a skull, her offspring will crush death itself. And then there are four phrases that surround her, and these were the controversial pieces. Cast down the mighty. Send the rich away. Fill the hungry. Lift the lowly. How dare he? Whose words are these? They are Mary's words. The only thing Benjamin Wildflower did was put them in present tense so that Mary would speak to us today and not merely speak to us from the past. Here is Wildflower's own interpretation of his work as he felt compelled to respond after he became aware of all the controversy. He is a good and faithful interpreter of Mary here, even if we have lost a majority of Mary's contrary message in translation. Quoting 
Benjamin Wildflower. Yes, I put her fist in the air. There are enough images out there focusing on the lowliness and meekness of Mary. I wanted to make one that highlights her holy rage and her indictment of a system built on idolatrous ideas about the kind of people who do or do not deserve things like food and shelter. I like this Mary. And I took for granted that this text was familiar. But when Naomi and I reflect on our own church upbringings, we realize now that while certain passages of Scripture were drilled into our heads, neither of us remember hearing these words even once as a child. Our faith compels us to believe that the story of the Incarnation is revolutionary. The tangible, physical, earthiness of the Gospel will disrupt our business as usual. We believe Jesus claims to be present in suffering and in the neglected. We have struggled with our own relative wealth. We wish our neighbors had access to the same money and resources we have access to. But we also know that simply giving away every penny we have won't solve the problem. What we do believe is that sharing the vantage point of the poor exposes many of the myths that perpetuate a system that plunders the poor. We believe that Jesus has destroyed these myths and these idols of systematic oppression for that we are now free to love and serve one another with no strings attached. We think that's part of what Mary was saying in her words. Give us hope. That's powerful. What are the implications then for those of us in this present tense? Contrariness is the answer. It is to lead a life that sidelines the mighty for the meek, that marginalizes the rich and embraces the poor, that feeds the hungry and cuts off the glutton, that lifts the lowly instead of amplifying those already arrogant and proud. Now, our impulse is to stomp on the brakes here because all this talk about bringing down the powerful and sticking it to the man and emptying the hands of the rich, that's just too much. We don't want to come to church and hear things like that. But we must hear things like that For it is the gospel itself. Jesus is born under this banner, under this song that Mary sings to us. And if Jesus does not check our pride, if he doesn't make us suspect of power, if he doesn't put us on the side of the marginalized and the poor and the mistreated and the outsider and the too long overlooked, if he doesn't cause us to open our hearts and our wallets to meet the needs of the world, then we aren't singing the song of Mary. We aren't celebrating Advent. We are celebrating ourselves and just using the Christmas season to feel good about it. And we are using what we call church as a protector of the status quo instead of as a prophetic burr under society's saddle. A rock 
in the shoe of how things are. We are called to contrariness. Quoting Jonathan Martin, If your Christianity makes the rich and powerful feel comfortable and the poor and oppressed feel unsafe, then it is time for a grand reversal. And that's the grand reversal Mary celebrated that Jesus implemented and that we are called to live out. Well, Ronnie, what are you saying? What am I supposed to do? You might ask. Well, my answer is simple. Don't listen to what I'm saying. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Listen to Mary. Listen to her son. That baby in the manger decades later would burst into the synagogue of his youth preaching this sermon. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, and the oppressed will be set free. The apple does not fall far from the tree. And when Jesus speaks these words, He sounds a whole lot like His mother. And what are those words of blessing later? Blessed are the poor, those who mourn, the humble, those who hunger for justice. Blessed are the merciful, the innocent, the peacemakers, the persecuted. You don't find this group on top of the world. You find this group in hospitals and in jails, at border crossings and in debtor's court, living in orphanages and asylums, crying in Appalachian rehab centers, in Delta prisons, schools built on the res, and, in, and in, inside of urban clinics. That's where you find those people, but that's also where you find Jesus. This is why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German pastor and theologian who was martyred by the Nazis, called the Magnificat the most passionate, the wildest, one might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. And why? Quoting Bonhoeffer now. It shows that God's gracious will is to love the humble and the lowly, the insignificant, the lost, the forgotten, the outcast, the weak, and the broken. This is not the gentle, dreamy Mary that we are so often seeing portrayed in pictures. She is passionate, powerful. This is a hard, strong, uncompromising song of bringing down rulers from their thrones and humbling the lords of this world of God's power, not the power of men. So this Advent, may we find the strength to sing this contrary song with her, and to courageously live out her words.